Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is week 10 of our series Chosen Royalty, where Pastor Mike will be teaching from Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. You know, I think there are some kids that are just a, a joy to talk about, talk to. You know, as we talk about little kids, there are some that you just go into and you'll get in a conversation and you can ask them about anything. You could ask them something they know nothing about and they will give you an incredibly confident answer. They will tell you exactly the way things are. And, uh, and you know what I mean. I mean. Those are just fun kids to talk to. You're always going to get an entertaining answer. Uh, someone did that some time ago with, uh, with kids asking about adult romance and love. And, and, and they asked some questions, got some very interesting answers. Um, they asked, why do people fall in love? And Jan, who is nine, said, no one's sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are really important. And uh, Harlan, who's eight, says, I think it's, so, it's supposed to do something with getting an arrow, shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be that painful. Um, how do people in love typically behave? Wendy, who's eight, says, when a person gets kissed for the first time, they fall down and they don't get up for at least an hour. <laughs> When's the proper age to get married? Judy, who's eight, said, 84. Because at that age, you don't have to work anymore and you can spend all your time loving each other in the bedroom. <laughs> Tom had another view. He's five. He said, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find myself a wife. <laughs> what do most people do on a date? Mike, when asked that, said on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough for their second date. <laughs> when asked, is it better to be single or married, Lynette, who's nine, said it's better for girls to be single, for not, but not for boys, because boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> when asked, what's the importance of good looks and love, Jeannie, who's eight, said if you want to be loved by someone who isn't already in your family, it doesn't hurt to be beautiful. Gary, uh, who's seven, said, it isn't always just how you look. Look at me, I'm Hampson like anything, and no one's, got, and no one's married me yet. And uh, Christine, who's nine, said, beauty is skin deep, but how rich you are can last a long time. <laughs> um, you know, how can you tell if two adults eating dinner at a restaurant are in love? And John, who's nine, said, just see if the man picks up the check. If he pays the bill, he's in love. Um, Brad, who's eight, said, lovers will be just staring at each other and their food will get cold. Most other people care more about the food. Um, and how can you make their love endure? Dave, who's eight, said, be good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. <laughs> Aaron, who's eight, said, don't forget your wife's name. That will mess up the love. <laughs> now, I love that. And you say, what makes us laugh at those things? You know, there's a little bit of truth. But what makes it funny is that these are questions that are being asked of children who really lack the maturity and understanding to be able to understand the true nature of adult love. But yet, some of these children, they're, they're humorous because they answer with a confidence that they're sure that they know this thing. In a sense, they don't know what they don't know. And, and even as you look at this, you say, it really causes me to think through a question. Are there possibly areas in our life that we can think that we have the right answer. We can confidently give an answer when asked a question, but in reality, we may really lack the maturity and understanding to really understand what's going on. Specifically, I think the question is, how well do we really understand God's love, God's love for us? 
You see, I think many of us might feel like, well, I understand it pretty well. If you ask me, I'm sure I can give a confident answer to explaining God's love. I can quote the scripture. I understand it. But in reality, we have to ask again, is it possible that our understanding is like that of a five-year-old? And when we look at this passage, what I think Paul is saying is exactly that. The problem is we may think we've got it, but we really don't. Look, Paul prays that, we would, that God would give us the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. He prays that we would know a love that surpasses knowledge. In reality, what we're seeing is that he challenges us to know what we already know. Why? Because we, in a sense, know about God's love for us. In fact, Paul has been teaching about it throughout the whole book of Ephesians. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, it's all been focused at this point, talking about God's love for us, God's blessings for us, this identity that we have for Christ. It teaches that we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. We've been predestined to be adopted as his children. It's an expression of love. He's adopted us. He's made us his children. We are forgiven. We are redeemed by the power of the blood. We're redeemed by Jesus' death on the cross. If you ever wanted to know if you're truly loved, he, Jesus died on the cross for you. There is no greater expression of love that you could ever imagine than that. And, and we look at this and we say, now we're God's adopted children. We're co-heirs with Christ. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a seal of that, of that promise. And, and these are all things that Paul says that we should know. He's taught it, but yet he now prays that we would know that God loves us. And in that, there's almost a contradiction in this. Because again, he's praying that we would know the things that he's taught us, which we seemingly now know. Now remember, this request is for Christians, for followers of Christ. He's now not praying this for a non-believing world. He's praying for people like us. And he's praying for things that, that we would, again, know things that we haven't already known. And the contradiction seems to be, how do we say, when he said, okay, you should know this, but then now I pray that you know it. So for example, we could look at a lot of these even within this passage. You know, here in verse 16, uh, he says that he prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts. But just go a few verses back at the end of chapter 22, and he says that we're being built into a temple to gather a dwelling place for God so that God is dwelling in us. God is there. So why is he praying that God would dwell there? Or, or we can look in chapter three, or chapter 3 here, and we see again that he prays that we would know the love of Christ. But back in chapter 1, what does he pray? He teaches us about the love that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And if you have any question what this is talking about, it's his love, because in love he predestined us for to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's how much we are loved. That's how much we are treasured before God. So why is he teaching us that we need to believe the things that we should already know? Look at again his, his prayer. Look at specifically verse 16. Look what he says. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened through his spirit in your inner being. Now when he talks about the inner being, what he's saying is that that's, that's like your soul. That's not your mind, it's not your feelings, that's the depth of your, your heart of hearts, your consciousness, your, the core of your personality, your soul, it's who you are. 
And he says it's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's one thing, in a sense, to know these things and even have a belief in them. It's another thing to experience it at a level where it literally defines the depth of our soul. They're different things. Now, even as we look at this, we remember that Paul is praying for Christians, which suggests that all of us, to some degree, are going to struggle with this. It isn't like, okay, well, I've got this and you've got to get it. No, he's saying that all of us are going to struggle with this idea that the ordinary situation against from, for all of us is that to some degree there are things about God that we know in our mind, but we really don't know in our soul. We don't know in our inner being. And part of that is, what does he say? Is that we literally lack the ability, the strength and ability to know these things. Look at it again. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 16. Look at this prayer. He prays that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Not that you figure it out, but that God would strengthen us, give us ability so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to compre comprehend with all the saints. That again, something God gives us. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that somehow God would give us the ability to know something that surpasses our ability to know it. See, he isn't pray, praying that we would strengthen ourselves or that we would figure this out. He's praying that God would empower us to do something that we cannot do on our own. The, the point is that we literally lack the ability to take that which is ours. See, we've been given a new identity in Christ. We've been, we've been given, as he said in chapter one, every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been adopted by God. He's given us his limitless love for us. We have this incredible spiritual wealth and it's all ours. But the idea is it's one thing to have that in the bank, it's another thing to actually draw on it and to use it. It's one thing to have Christ in our heart, it's another thing to actually experience it. It's one thing to know about the fullness of Christ. It's another thing to, to actually make that the reality in the, in the depth of our being. And every once in a while, there's a story that makes the news about someone who died and, and whose life was defined by seeming poverty. And uh, they had nothing, but yet as people then got to know a little bit more about them, they found that they actually were very wealthy. A story that actually made news a number of years ago, a famous story, was a woman named Bertha Adams. She died alone in West Palm Beach on Easter Sunday in, in 1976. She's 71 years old. Her cause of death was, was malnutrition. She was 50 pounds when she passed away. Uh, you know, she just literally, her body couldn't survive because she had nothing to her. And when the state authorities went into her home, they found that her place was, they said it was a pigsty. It was just horrendous. Some, you know, one investigator said she had never seen a home in greater disarray. This woman had begged for food from neighbors. Every, all the clothes that she had, she had gotten from a Salvation Army. By all appearances, she was a penniless recluse, a forgotten widow. But that wasn't the case. Because then when they got into her home and they went through all this disheveled belongings, they found a couple little keys. And they were safe deposit keys from two local banks. And when they went to the first one, they opened it up and they found 700 AT&T stock certificates and hundreds of other stock certificates and bonds and, and, um, and $200,000 cash. They went to the other bank and there were piles, $600,000 of cash. And, uh, and when they combined the net worth of these boxes, it was well over a million dollars. It would be, this was in the 70s, so it was the equivalent of over $7 million today. This woman was incredibly wealthy. Now, let me ask you, was she wealthy? Was, was she a wealthy person? 
Well, in one sense, yes. She had, again, millions of dollars to her name that were there, that were, that were right there, that's wealthy by any standard. But in the other sense, she wasn't at all because she lived in incredible poverty. She died of malnutrition without food to eat. She lived as if she had nothing. And when the story came out, it made national news and people talked about how it was a tragedy. And it was. In one sense, it's a tragedy for to have a 70-year-old woman to die in that horrific state of malnutrition and such poverty around her. But in another sense, it was a tragedy that was compounded by the fact that this same woman was worth millions of dollars that she never accessed. Now, when you hear that story, part of our, part of us, our minds you know, almost get frustrated. It says, what was wrong with her? You know, how could she let that happen? How could she have all this wealth and never access it? How could she literally starve to death, live in seeming poverty when she had millions of dollars right, right there across, you know, right at the corner? But even before we get too critical of her, I need to, again, point out this is exactly what Paul is saying can be true of us, that we can be guilty of the same deception. Again, throughout the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been expounding on all the blessings that we have in Christ, all the wealth that we have that comes as a result of this new identity. And at the heart of this challenge, he's saying, the tragedy is that there are too many of us that are living as if it isn't true. The tragedy is that we are children of the king that have been adopted, that have been given this incredible identity, this incredible wealth, and yet we're living as paupers who are unloved and unworthy and, and uncared for and of little value. And Paul is challenging us, saying the tragedy is that if we're wasting away and, and literally rotting of, of malnutrition spiritually and, and not making any difference in the world where we totally miss the blessings that are ours, that we just need to learn to take. See, the problem for many of us is there's a gap between our theology and our functional belief. And when I talk about this, when I talk about our theology, these are the things that we know, that we know intellectually to be true, the things that we read in the Bible and that we quote. And Well, we know about God's love for us. We know about our identity. We, we know those things. But our functional beliefs are what's true of our soul, what's true in the heart of hearts. And here's how we can tell the difference. You see, when you look at what we really believe in our being, it always is translated into action. So when it's something that we really know in our soul, when we really truly believe it, that belief is always expressed in action. We will consistently act as if what we say is true is actually true. But on the other hand, when it's something that we don't believe in our soul, when we believe in our mind, it's just our theology, then at the moment of trial, at the moment of temptation, when there's pressure, we're gonna act as if the idea isn't true. We know it's true, but at the moment of pressure, we live as if it isn't true. And the fact is, all of us have this. All, that's why Paul prays this. All of us, to some degree, have a gap between our theology and our functional belief. All of us have things that we know in our mind, that we quote, that we sing, but when the pressure comes, we act as if it isn't true. Now, it may not all be the same thing for all of us. I may struggle in areas that are different than you struggle in. And, and we're going to, you know, doubt in different areas. We're going to struggle in different ideas. But, but let me even just give you a couple examples of where many of us will struggle. For example, we know that God is all-powerful. We know that he is all-loving. That we know that he's in control of every detail of our life. And yet, we then worry as if that weren't true. 
We watch the news and we worry about what's happening in the world and we worry what's happening in our nation and, and we, we worry about our family and we get a, a questionable health thing and we worry about our health and we worry about our finances and we know that God is in charge and if God were really in charge and God was really loving, we wouldn't worry because we wouldn't be able to trust God but practically we act as if that's not true because at the moment of crisis, we don't necessarily believe all the things that we know. Or another example, we know that God created the world with a structure of moral truth and, and, and that he says certain things are right or wrong. And, and, and when it's right or wrong, it's, it's actually truth for us. So if I align my life with what he says is right, with what is true, then my life is going to be healthier. I'm going to be happier. I know that. But yet, then at that moment of crisis, we live as if it isn't true. You know, we're tempted by a sexual relationship that we know is wrong, that we know God doesn't want us to be involved in that outside of marriage. And, and you know, and we look at that and we say, yeah, but, and suddenly we give in. Or we're tempted by a business opportunity and, and here's this opportunity and to get ahead, we feel like we have to compromise some of our ethics and our morality, but, but that's how business works. And so while we know that this is God's moral truth and we know that obeying God is the way to happiness and health, practically we live as if we don't believe it. We live as if that isn't true. We live as if our wisdom, our desires are the way to, really the way to be happy, not God's truth. Or we know that God has adopted us as his children. We know that God loved us so much that Jesus died on the cross we know that you couldn't be loved more. We know that God has said that you are his masterpiece. He's proud of you, who you are. But then we live as if that weren't true. Instead of believing what God says about you, about your worth and your value, you continue to believe the critical words that you heard from your parents when you were young. You continue to believe the critical words that you heard from friends from years ago. You continue to believe the self-critical words about your failures and your past, and you say, God can't use me. No, I'm defined myself as a sinner, as a failure. That's who I am. You continue to believe those lies. No, no, the truth about your identity and value is what God says about you. That's what's true, but yet you live as if it isn't true. You know it in your mind, but you don't know it in your inner being, in your soul. So you don't really believe it. You don't live as it is true. And that's, and that's countless examples that we all struggle with some of these areas. And we're like people that have millions of dollars in the bank, and yet we're living in poverty. You know, we're wasting away because we never access that which is already ours. So how do we get there? How do we move beyond this knowledge of what we know theologically to this true knowing at the depth of our soul? Let's look to this prayer again, and let me try out two ideas here that are related that what Paul's teaching us about this difference of knowing something and knowing it in our being. Start in verse 14 again. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's what I want you to see. He prays that God may grant you to be strengthened through your spirit and your inner being. And what happens if you are strengthened in your inner being? The result is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And what he's doing here is he's praying that God would, you, would help us unite our theological knowledge about God and our relational experience about God. See, it isn't just that we need more theology. Now, there's importance to that. Is it important to know the truth about God? Yes, it is. 
You see, even if we look at this and we say, okay, the challenge is to be able to know the things to apply in our soul, the things that we know in our mind. If I don't know them in my mind, I can't apply them in my soul. So I have to start by saying, do I know the truth about God? There is value in studying God's word and learning and how he loves us. And, but, but the need isn't just to know more. It's then to take that which I know and to take it from our mind and take it to our heart. So when he prays that we would be strengthened through power, through his spirit, and your inner being, so Christ may dwell in your hearts, but through faith, he's saying that he would take what we know and he would make it real through the experience of relationship. He's speaking in terms of relationship. Even to help you understand that since it's relationship, let's think in terms of human relationship. So let's say if I go back and I think back when I was single and I'm dating, and if I came to you and I said, well, here's my girlfriend, and well, I really like to be with her, and... and but early in the relationship when I was dating somebody, you know, I enjoyed it, but I really wasn't vulnerable. They weren't changing me. I mean, I, we weren't really, you know, impacting at a life-changing perspective. And I mean, other than my schedule was a little more full and my wallet was a little more empty. I mean, it wasn't radical change in life. Um, but then something happened. I went from dating to being married. And I made this commitment to love Sandy at the core of my being. And when we got married, we began to live together to dwell together as husband and wife, and I quickly learned that you don't make that kind of commitment and walk away unscathed. I mean, unchanged. Um, you know, that, no, no, you are changed. Why? Because when you live together, what happens is that I suddenly expose all areas of my life to her. That, that there's not like just a little part that, well, I'm letting her see this. Suddenly, she sees everything. And because of this interaction in life, we rub off on each other so that it's amazing you know, it's, all, it's amazing how often we, you know, we come down and get dressed separately and we even look alike, you know, we think alike and, and we're changing, we're impacting each other in ways that we're becoming more and more alike. And you see this with married couples all the time. Now, here's what God is saying. is God saying, I want to be engaged with you in that way so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that he isn't, isn't just, you know, he isn't just the, the friend, he isn't just somebody that you are interact with some, but that he actually is living there. You know, I think for many of us, you know, as Christians, we can kind of make God, you know, our friend that we visit once a week on Sundays. You know, we go and we visit his house and, and uh, we talk to him and worship him and, and listen to his advice and we take that into consideration. And some, we might be really close, we go a couple times a week and we go to a Bible study and or even if we have devotions, it's like, oh, we invited him over for a cup of coffee. And, but yet, in the middle of that, he's still a friend. And God's design for a relationship isn't that we would have a friend that we would spend time with every once in a while. No, that's not what God's desire for us. It isn't that we would have this person we invite into our home. And, no, he wants, us to, he wants to dwell in our hearts. He says, no, I want marriage. And that's why he speaks in that terms of there is a, almost a marriage there. I want, I want to be involved in your life so that every aspect of your life, I'm seeing, I'm interacting. And, and the closer we get, the more I'm going to change you. Boy, if my wife has changed me, what happens if I'm that close to God? He's going to change every part of my being. And that's what he prays, is that we would have that kind of relationship that's rooted in love. Look what he says, that we may have the strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we experience God. And when we experience him, we realize by experience how loved we are, how treasured we are that we not just read it, but that we literally dwell with him so that these things become real in a relational and experiential way. And what does, it's, it's something that literally is a truth that ambushes us. 
Look what he, Paul says again now in verse 18. When he prays that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of, 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 of the love of Christ, the word there, comp comprehend, is, is a really interesting word. It, it often is actually translated ambush. It means to grab hold of, to ambush. And you say, what's an ambush? Well, an ambush is when you're surprised by something to the point that it takes you under control. Someone surprises you and you're conquered through that surprise. And, and the idea is that's what God's love should happen to us, that we have this relationship with him in a way that we just don't keep it at a distance, but it literally enters into us and it's something that's going to surprise us because it's radically different than what we're going to experience anywhere else. And it's then not only intellectual, but it's, it's something that's a total experience. That's what Paul had prayed about in chapter 1 when he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I pray that you get this at the core of your being. See, not just that we know it, but that we really get it. Now, think about it even from our experience. Have you ever known someone that that needed to change, and they knew they needed to change, they knew the truth about something, and you tried to tell them, you tried to convince them that they needed to change? Did that go well? Yeah, how about you? Are there things that you need to know, you need you know to do, and you've got people that continue to, to try to convince you? Are you convinced by the argument? Usually not, because that's something I already know. I just don't want to do it. I know it, but I really don't believe it. Every once in a while, you then run across someone, and, and you see this radical change. And usually the radical change is because of experience. A good example of this, I remember a friend of mine that was, you know, kind of overweight and was not in great health, and, and, um, and he had talked about, well, I need to go on a diet and do different things. And, and I hadn't seen him for a while. I saw him a couple years ago, and he was transformed. He had lost like 60 pounds, was in great shape, looked totally different. And I asked him what happened. Well, he told me that he had a major heart attack. He almost died on the, on the, on the, you know, in the ER, and he suddenly realized that, you know, that his lifestyle was going to kill him. And so he had an experience. So what he knew in his mind suddenly became real because he was ambushed by the truth. And he went from knowing it in his mind to knowing it in his soul, and suddenly it became something that changed his behavior. And, and that's what God is calling about here. He's calling us to have that kind of experience with the truth. But now you say, okay, I understand that, but how do I do it? That sounds great, but how do I do it? How do I get there? How do, what are the practical steps to grasping this, to living it out? What is God calling us to do practically? What is our response? Now, let's go back. Remember, this is all a prayer. Paul is praying this for us. So go right back to verse 16. He prays that God would grant us to be strengthened through power, through his spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of Christ. Now more than anything else, he's teaching us to pray that God would give us what we don't have. He's not teaching us to try harder, to study more, to memorize more verses, no. Again, because in all the other areas, you know, some just giving me more information isn't going to change things. The problem isn't that I lack information, it's that I, I lack the ability to apply the information that I already have. So what does he pray? He works that God would work in our hearts to give us the strength to believe these things. He prays for God's intervention. He prays, basically, again, when he's praying this, what is he teaching us? He's teaching us, what I'm praying for you, now I'm teaching you, you should pray for yourself that what we need to do is we need to start by admitting, God, I don't get it. 
I, I have the right theology, I have the right knowledge, but God, I, I realize that I don't really get it. I don't really know how loved I am. I really don't, my, my actions and my behavior show that I really don't believe these things that I say that I believe. And God, I lack the ability to do it. I can't give myself these things. I can't make myself believe these things. And so what he's calling us to do is to say, God, I agree with you. Give me what I don't have. He's teaching us to seek God in prayer and ask him to literally give us what we don't have. And if we say, God, give me the strength, do a miracle in me to give me the ability to believe, to know the things that I already know, God's going to answer that prayer. But even as we pray, there's also a sense that we need to wrestle with it. There's a, an aggressive wrestling as we, to claim these truths. Why? Because I can sit there and say, oh, I know these things, but the fact of the matter is that I, I do worry. The fact of the matter is that I don't obey God all the time. The, the fact is that I am, I am proud. I, I struggle with my own self-worth. and you know, I, I struggle with all these things because I, I know them. The fact is I fall short. And some of that is coming and saying, God, come and do this miracle. But then some of that is to say, and God, while you do this miracle, I'm going to struggle. And you know what that means? That means when we look at the lie, that we call it a lie. We're going to see this really play out in the latter parts of Ephesians. To recognize that there are a lot of things that we believe that are not only wrong, but they're literally of Satan. That they, you know, the things that your dad used to tell you, you keep hearing that because that's Satan telling you a lie. The things that you believe about yourself and your failures, that's who you are. That's Satan saying, that's a lie. If it disagrees with God's word, it's, it's a lie not from God. And there are times that when we look at this and we get back into that self-talk and we say, but this is where I failed and this is where I fall short. I need to call it what it is. That's a lie. I need to be able to wrestle and say, God, help me to identify that as a lie. Help me to reject it and help me to claim the truth. Give me the ability to believe what you say about me. Help me to be able to reject these things that I've been telling myself for years that have been holding me back and defining me for years, but that I know are wrong. I know the truth here, but in my heart, my soul, I believe these lies. God, help me reject it, pull these things out, help me to claim and to truly believe that which is true. And that is it for this week's message. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us a text to 330-644-6121. Easter is almost here, and we have a lot of great things planned for Easter Sunday, Good Friday, and we also have special events planned just for kids. Learn more about all of those in our service times at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in prayer requests. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.